Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It is so good to start our week in worship, and Christmas is almost here. Do you know that? Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. So if you are wondering how much time you have left to get those last-minute gifts, that's how much time you have left. You have one more week. Word from, a wise, word from the wise, this year it seems like if, if they say something will be here on a specific date, it may not end up here on a specific date. I have that on good authority. So order your things now. Time is running short, but it's also how much time we have left to invite our friends, our families, our neighbors, our coworkers to join us next Sunday to celebrate Christmas Eve with us here at Eastside. We're so excited about the Christmas Eve celebration. We are gonna have Christmas Eve worship on our normal time and our normal place. So next Sunday morning, 10.30, same time, same place, but it will be a special service designed for the whole family with some incredible special elements. So we look forward to celebrating Christmas with you next Sunday, 10.30 here at Legacy Middle School. But we're counting on you to invite your friends, your family, your neighbors, and your coworkers to celebrate with you. It is the perfect time of year. It is the easiest time of year to invite someone to come to church with you because everyone is looking for somewhere to celebrate Christmas. So they may as well celebrate Christmas at a church. Uh, And Christmas is such a special opportunity, isn't it? Like there is so much fun, so much excitement going on around this season. We don't want to miss it. In fact, that's been the the theme of our teaching series over the course of the month of December is we don't want to miss Christmas. We called it the night before Christmas because as we look back at the very first Christmas, it's surprising to find out that on the night before the very first Christmas, no one was anxiously anticipating the arrival of Jesus. It seems like they should. We have insight. We get a glimpse into three different cities or three different contexts that are connected to the Christmas story. And none of them, no one in any of those cities is anxiously anticipating the arrival of Jesus. The city of Rome was integral in the story, but they were so focused on themselves, they lacked self-awareness. And so they were unaware in Rome. The city of Bethlehem had the promises from the Old Testament prophecies that the Savior would come from their small town. But they were so so busy with the tasks at hand, getting things ready for company coming into town, that there was no room left for Jesus. And today we're going to see that the final city, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, had given up hope. We don't want to miss Jesus this Christmas like they missed Jesus the very first Christmas. So we're wrapping up this study. We're continuing to identify the very same things that can distract or discourage us from experiencing the work of God in the world around us. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week with the Christmas story, starting in verse 22. So far, as we get started, we've seen that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph and Mary travel nearly a hundred miles to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the busy town of Bethlehem. So now we fast forward a few days and we're picking up the story in Luke chapter 2 verse 22. And here's what it says. It says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem 
to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so that's the context for the story today. We're introduced to the, to the third and final city, to the third and final context connected to the Christmas story, the city of Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph, after giving birth to Jesus, they travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to do what every faithful Jewish couple would do, offer a sacrifice for their son. Now, this might seem weird to us today, but that's what they did because the law instructed them to do it. It instructed them to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer the sacrifices for their son as part of this purification ceremony. And so this purification ceremony, without diving into all the details, really had two primary purposes. The first is it was instituted by God to emphasize the corruption of humanity and the purity of God. Secondly, it was just plain sanitary so that the new mother would have some time to recover. But as part of the process, when a family had a firstborn son, they would offer a sacrifice to symbolically buy back or redeem their son. And if you're new to Bible study, it's rooted in the Exodus story, where when God was leading his people out of bondage, out of Egypt, he sent a series of plagues. And the 10th and final plague he sent to inflict on the Egyptians so they would let his people go was he killed the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians, but he spared the firstborn son of the Israelites. And so from that point forward, the firstborn sons were to be dedicated to the Lord as if they were, uh, they were set apart to the Lord. And so the sacrifice would symbolically buy them back or redeem them. And so when a family had a firstborn son, they would go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice to redeem their son. The law, the Old Testament Jewish law, was full of sacrifices and ceremonies that would ultimately point to Jesus full of sacrifice and ceremonies that would point to Jesus. And so that's what Mary and Joseph do. They travel to Jerusalem to the temple to offer the sacrifices. And then verse 25, it says this. It says, now there was a man. Now I circled that in my Bible and we're gonna circle back to it in just a moment, but notice it says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Okay, and so we're going to leave that verse up for a minute because that really sets the stage for where we're going. This very first Christmas story, there's so much excitement in the city of Jerusalem as the temple sacrifices are being offered. But in that city, there is a man looking forward to the consolation of Israel. What was the consolation of Israel? Well, the consolation of Israel was the peace and restoration that would be realized at the coming of the Messiah. When God would forgive sins and set things right. It's the comfort that the holy city longed for. Because Israel had been through so much suffering physically and spiritually as they tried to figure out their relationship with God and wandered from his ways. And so the people of Jerusalem were looking forward to being consoled, the consolation of Israel, when the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And they were looking forward to it with good reason because Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to what? To Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, 
that her iniquity, her sins are pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Oh, that's an Old Testament prophecy, but it is an incredible promise. Can you imagine having these promises recorded for your city in the prophecies? Promises that God is going to show up to comfort his people. He will be the source of comfort. That he's going to speak to them, but he's going to speak to them tenderly. That their cry for mercy was going to reach his ears. That peace would come. That her sins would be pardoned. That she would find forgiveness in the faithful coming of the Lord. But here's what stood out to me. With all of that context in mind, if we put the the first verse back up there, is there was what? A man in Jerusalem waiting for the consolation of Israel. Like a man, that's what that stands out to me. I mean, we read this like it's part of the Christmas story because we're so familiar with it, but it was shocking to me when I thought about all of the promises and all of the prophecies that were made for the holy city. And in the holy city, there's a man, as far as we know, looking for the consolation of Israel. What about all the other men and all the other women? I mean, this is the holy city. Why wasn't everyone sitting on the edge of their seat expecting the consolation of Israel? I mean, everything in that city, all the temple traditions, all the celebrations, all the sacrifices were there to point to Jesus. It seems like there of all places, They should have been expecting the arrival of the promised Messiah. And I was trying to think about how we could illustrate this. Like I was thinking about it would be like if you went to Disney World the day after the Super Bowl, you would be expecting what? No, seriously, help us because Nick has no idea. You would be expecting the champion of the Super Bowl, which is the big football game, uh, to arrive to have a parade hosted in his honor. It's just what they do. And so people in Disney would line the streets anxiously anticipating the arrival of the championship team and their, their quarterback or their MVP, and they would host this because they were expecting it because they are of all places. That's where they're anticipating him to arrive. And Jerusalem should have had the same fanfare. It should have had the same expectation, anxiously anticipating the arrival of Jesus, the Savior of the world. But why weren't they? Why does it say there was a man named Simeon? Why does it not say men and women on every street corner were looking forward to the consolation of Israel? Here's what I think. I think that they had given up hope. I think they'd given up hope. And here's what I mean. I think they believed in God. Obviously, they believed in God. They were still celebrating the traditions of God. They were still going through the motions and offering the sacrifices that pointed to the Messiah in obedience to God. They believed that God was real, but they had given up hope that God would really work in their life, in their lifetime. And if we're honest, we can kind of understand because it had been 400 years since the last prophet spoke a prophecy pointing to the coming of Jesus. So much time had passed that people had accepted the fact that God might work someday, but it wouldn't be in their day. They believed that God was real, but they had given up hope that they would really experience God at work in their life, in their lifetime. Does that not resonate with so many of us in so many ways today? It is truly one of my greatest fears is that we would believe in God, but we would not believe God. 
that we'd gather together as his people in worship and we would read his word and we would applaud what he said, but we would leave this place with no anticipation that he is gonna follow through on what he has promised, that we would fall into the trap of being a people going through the motions, that we would believe in God, but we would lose hope that we would experience him in real life. That's why our mission statement from the beginning through today is that we would lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. Our mission statement isn't that we would lead others to learn immeasurably more. And I love to learn. It's not that we would lead others to sing immeasurably more. We would lead others to fellowship immeasurably more. Our mission statement is that we lead others to experience God for themselves because we believe that God is at work in the world and we don't want to miss it. But as we read this story and we think about how the holy city in the first century had given up hope, the question I want to ask is, have you given up hope? Now, I don't mean have you given up hope that God exists, but I mean have you given up hope that you're going to experience him at work in your lifetime? Have you given up hope that you will see God at work in your life? You believe he'll work in the lives of other people, but have you given up hope that you're going to see him work in your life? Have you given up hope that you will experience God's provision in your life? You believe that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but you're not sure if he's going to provide for your needs today. Have you given up hope that God will bring a godly spouse into your life? Have you given up hope that you can save what you had or once had with your spouse? Have you given up hope that you will experience the relationship with a friend restored? Have you given up hope that God will save your kids? Have you given up hope that God will give you kids? Have you given up hope that God will renew your mind? Have you given up hope that God will set you free from anxiety? Have you given up hope that God will set you free from sin? Have you given up hope that you will be healed physically? Have you given up hope that you'll be restored spiritually? Have you given up hope that God will follow through or restore that sense of calling and significance that you long for as you walk with him? Have you given up hope that you can still make a difference? Have you given up hope that you will experience God in any significant way in your life? Have you given up hope? I think at times, oftentimes, a lot of us, like those in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth, believe that God is real but we have given up hope that God will really work in our life, in our lifetime. And if that's where we find ourselves today, even in part, we have completely missed the message of Christmas. So then the question is, how do we not lose hope? How do we not lose hope? Let's look at the man to answer that question who did not lose hope, the one man. Luke chapter two, verse 25 ends this way. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And it says, and the Holy Spirit of God was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die, see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to to the custom of the law. So how did Simeon not lose hope? I don't want to guess. Like, I want to see what was it that set Simeon apart. It was the presence and voice of the Holy Spirit. How do we not lose hope like Simeon? We hear God's voice. We listen to his Holy Spirit. And I know that sounds so simple. And we talk about it 
every Sunday. But if you're here today and you are struggling to hold on to hope, struggling to hold on to hope that you are going to experience the provision of God in life, you are going to experience the promise of God in your life, you are going to experience the power of God in your life, the last thing you need to hear and the least helpful thing I could tell you today would be try harder. Right? Because let's be honest, you've tried. You're here today. Do you know how much trying it took to get out, to get to church on time today? Like, you are trying. If you knew what it took to get the kids ready, if you knew what it took to get the car ready, like, if you knew what it took to get you ready, like, you're trying. The last thing you need to do is hear, try harder. And so I'm not going to suggest that if you're struggling with hope, you need to try harder. Simeon didn't try harder. Simeon leaned on the Holy Spirit. Simeon uh, Said the whole, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he came into the temple in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God was speaking into Simeon's life. The Holy Spirit of God was acting on Simeon's life. And here's the cool thing. When you put your faith in Jesus nearly 2,000 years later, the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life. How do I know that? Because when Peter, the apostle Peter, gathered a group of people together or had the courage to stand up amongst the people, among a group of people that got to gather together in the same holy city of Jerusalem some years later after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he preached the gospel to them with confidence and courage and conviction as someone who had seen it for himself. It cut the people who heard the message to the heart. So much so that they didn't know what to ask except for this. They said in Acts chapter 2, it says, when the crowd that was gathered there heard the gospel message, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like, how do we get in on this God thing that you're talking about? And Peter said to them very clearly, he said, repent, turn from the way of life that you are choosing to live and turn instead to God. That's what repentance is. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I think a lot of us, if we're not careful, stop right there. We say, like, how, how do we get in on this God thing? How do we get on the good side of God? Because we recognize that we've sinned, and we recognize that something that is beyond our comprehension has put us at odds of God, and we want to go to heaven, not hell, right? And so how do we get in on God's side? And we repent, and we get baptized to receive the forgiveness of your sins. But Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, through Peter, goes on and says, and... And you, the church, the average person putting their faith in Jesus in the holy city in the first century, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if there was any confusion, he goes on, he says, the promise is for you. And it is for your children. And it is for all who are far off that everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself will receive the indwelling presence of God himself in the form of his Holy Spirit. That blows my mind. But the promise of the Holy Spirit gives us confidence that God will follow through on his promise. You have this promise. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you turn from doing life your way, 
if you will give your life to Jesus, if you will unite your life with Christ in Christian baptism, which is a way of showing that we have died to our old self. We say there is no going back, but we are going to be raised to a newness of life to walk with Christ. You will not only receive forgiveness, you will receive the presence of God. It is an incredible promise, but it's not the only promise because the Holy Spirit of God, God is alive and well, and he is still making promises. See what he says to Simeon. He says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Have you heard God make promises to you? Like, I want you to honestly stop and think for just a second. Like, when was the last time you heard the Holy Spirit speak and give you a promise from God. Now, what do you mean? Do you hear an audible voice of God? No, I'm not suggesting that. But I do mean that when you hear the Holy Spirit speak, we hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. So to figure that out, what does your prayer life look like? Like we want the promises of God, right? And, and maybe we could flip through the Bible and we could see some of those promises that have been made to all of the people of God. And we want those promises for ourselves, but it just doesn't feel like it's ever going to happen for us, that we've given up hope. I would say, let's start at the source. What does your prayer life look like? Every week at Eastside, we say John chapter 10, verse 27 says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so often, if we're not careful, our prayer life becomes a one-sided conversation, doesn't it? If I were to say, like, do you pray? Every single one of you would say, of course I pray. I pray every day. I pray throughout the day. If I were to dig in and say, what does that prayer life look like? Well, when I'm driving, I'm talking to God. And when I'm sitting, I'm talking to God. And those things are great. But I think the biblical example of prayer and what God invites us to is much more than just shouting to God the things that we hope he knows. In fact, I would suggest in our prayer time, we should probably do more listening than speaking because God already knows the things we want him to know. We are invited to bring our requests to him. I'm not suggesting that we don't tell God the things that are on our heart. Of course we do. But when we pray, are we making space to hear from him? When you talk about your prayer time, are you spending time reading the word or are you just saying some things hoping God will hear? I'm going to give you an example, my example, for how I pray when I start my day. It's the same routine. It works for me. I would suggest it would work for you. Perhaps there's another way, but I think there should be some element of it. And this is nothing special. And I give this to you as if God can speak to me, he can speak to anyone because, man, I have hearing problems. But I start my day every day the same way, with coffee. Because I've said it before, the Holy Spirit speaks much more clearly when we're well caffeinated, right? But then I sit down with the same two things. I sit down with my Bible and my prayer journal. And before I open my Bible, I open my prayer journal, I write the date, and I, I, I praise God. And I say the same thing every day. God, you are gracious and good. You are faithful and just. You always follow through on your promises. Why do I do that? Because God is worthy of our praise, and I need to start my day recognizing that he is in control. You don't have to say the same thing, but I suggest we start our day in worship, recognizing God for who he is. And then I, if something is incredibly pressing on my heart, I'll lay it out before him. But often I just say, God, I'm about to open your word and I want to hear you speak. Give me a humble heart, calm my mind, let me hear the things that you would have me say. And then I close my prayer journal and I open my Bible to whatever portion of the scripture I'm in. And it's usually just reading right through somewhere. And I just read. 
And I'd love to say that the Holy Spirit just speaks so clearly, and sometimes he does, but often I read and I think, God didn't say a single thing. So I read it again. Like, I don't just keep reading. I read it again. God, what do you want to say? And it is amazing if we find some stillness and we listen for him to speak, how he will speak. And I, I, we got to be careful that we don't make everything in the scripture about us. Sometimes the best thing we can hear God say is hear God say who God is. Like we read the Old Testament, these stories about sacrifices and people being saved from Egypt. And we think, what bearing does that have on me? It reminds us that we have a God who, when it looks like things are out of control, is in control. And all of a sudden, I've heard God speak to me about who God is. I see the promises of God. And then I'll open my prayer journal again. I'll record the scriptures that I've read. I'll pray to God, thanking him for the things he said. I'll record the things I heard him say. Then I'll share with him what's on my mind, and I'll ask him to work as I go throughout my day. And then I close it all up, and I go about my day, and I pray throughout the day. Not like that, but I continue to pray. I pray like that because when I read the word of God, I hear the voice of God. I see the character of God, and I'm reminded of the promises of God. I've seen something in my prayer time over the course of this year as I reflect all throughout scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, I've seen the same theme. It's been there all along, but it stands out to me that God is steadfast in his commitment to his people. Every time I see God's love described, he's talking about the steadfast love of God, that God is steadfast in his commitment to his people. That's a promise for me and that's a promise for you. But if you're giving up hope, if you're giving up hope, because you don't think that God is going to heal you. If you're giving up hope because you believe in God, but you don't believe that God is going to work in a real way in your life today, I would ask you this week, spend more time in prayer. I'm not trying to ask you to try harder. Just stop and spend time with God. I want to give you an example that it might feel like I'm picking on you, but I've heard this more times than I can count through our church from people I love who love God. It's this idea that God, God cannot or will not heal me from my anxiety. Don't raise your hand because it'll make you anxious. But anyone here struggle with anxiety? Like anxiety is on the rise. And it's not just our church and it's not just you. It is across this country. And here's the thing. I think the church is giving up hope that God can actually heal. Like, yeah, we believe that God can heal our cancer. And we can believe that God can, you know, do this or God can do that. But anxiety seems like that might be on the reach of God. And it doesn't make sense because we read the promises of God or the instruction of God. Like Philippians chapter 4. It says so plainly, right? It just seems so easy to the Apostle Paul. Do not be anxious about anything. Does that make you anxious? Like, I've tried that. I've tried really, really hard. I woke up in the day, thought, today's the day that's going to be different. I am not going to be anxious. And so I've been praying for how do we lead our church? Because I've heard this so many times over. And then I just simply opened the scripture and I kept reading. Do not be anxious about anything. But in what? Everything by prayer. And again, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. That tells us that what the Apostle Paul is saying is, it's not prayer, just telling God, telling God, telling God. Of course we tell God. But when we pray, are we stopping to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say? Are we reading the scripture and recognizing that God is in control, even if it feels like this world is out of control? When we pray, are we stopping to spend time with God? Because it doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next verse. So make your request known. Do not be anxious, but in prayer by everything, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, 
This is a promise, right? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that supernatural peace from God that does not make sense to the world or the counselors of this world will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, finally, brothers, I want to add to that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I want to present this to you as an example, because how do we think about the things of God? We have to fill our mind with God, and we have to spend time with God. And I don't think the voice of God speaks louder than the voice of this world if we simply tell God from time to time what we're thinking. I think the voice of God drowns out the voice of this world when we spend more time with God. If you're struggling today with anxiety, if you're struggling today with health problems, if you're struggling today with discouragement or doubt or depression, if you're struggling today and the last thing you need to hear is try harder, the first thing we should try is spending more time listening to his Holy Spirit. Because it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will speak when we are willing to listen. I think it's important to start our day listening to the Holy Spirit because then he will lead us through the rest of the day. And I already hear your objections. Well, you don't know what time I have to be at work. I do. I mean, some of you guys have to be at work at 4 a.m. Spend 15 minutes with God. You can go back and finish the time with God afterward, but let God speak first because then God will lead you the rest of the day. The Holy Spirit will lead us as we walk with him. Simeon says, it says of Simeon, it says, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had revealed the promises of God to him, and the Holy Spirit of God was leading him. It says that he came in the Spirit, verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus. The Holy Spirit led Simeon to this divine appointment. And then here's the thing. The thing that we see in Simeon's life can be true of our lives. The Holy Spirit will lead us. In fact, the scripture would say, if we are led by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit wants to lead us every step of every day. Now, here's the thing. It takes practice, right? And I know it can kind of get discouraging. If I'm saying the Holy Spirit will lead you, you just spend time with the God and the Holy Spirit, you're thinking like, I mean, I've never experienced that. I want to tell you this week how much practice it takes to sometimes hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. So Tyler, who is coaching our community groups, had set before us a challenge for our community groups at the start of this month that we were going to make an intentional effort to share our faith. And there's some steps that went with this. So as a community group, we've been praying for opportunities to share our faith. This week, I've been praying, God, give me a divine opportunity to share my faith. And on Tuesday, I had to go to the, the doctor, the ear doctor, because I don't hear so good. And uh, I was walking in, I opened the door, and I looked behind me, and there was a lady who, uh, let's just say she was old and well-advanced in years. I don't know how old she was, but she was ancient coming across the parking lot. And I say that kindly. She was older than ancient, and she was walking slow. And I just thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop and I'm going to hold the door. And from across the parking lot, she said, hey, don't wait for me. I said, no, it's okay. I'd be happy to help. I don't even know if she could open the door. So I'll hold the door. 
And she like makes her way slowly. It's like 45, 56 minutes later. I don't know. It took, took a long time for her to walk across the parking lot. She's like, I really don't wait on me. It's like, ma'am, I'm not in a hurry. I've got plenty of time. I'm a preacher. I've got nothing to do until Sunday. Uh, come on. I didn't say that. But I hold the door and she gets to the door and she says, man, I remember when my mom told me growing old is the worst. And she said, I didn't listen then because I was taking my kids to tennis practice and all kinds of things. But I'm telling you, it is the worst. And I just say what I say to every old people when they complain about getting old. It's just like second nature. I said, well, don't complain about it because it's, an, it's a privilege not afforded to all. And she's like, oh, that's a really good perspective. And she walked in and I closed the door and I had to go to the restroom. So I hurried off. And as soon as I closed the door behind me, I thought, that was the divine appointment. She was talking about dying, like being so old. I could have said, well, if you think this is hard, you know how good it's going to be on the other side. Where are you going for Christmas this Christmas Eve? Like the door was literally open as I held the door open and I flat out missed it, right? Flat out, I went to our community group that Wednesday and I said, I got to tell you guys, I swung and missed. God gave me a fastball across the middle and I didn't even swing. I stood there and took a called third strike. It was so discouraging. But as I stop and I think about it, I recognize I'm just grateful that God spoke. So what does it look like when God speaks? It's so often the Bible says it is a still, small voice. It is the subtle promptings when we're walking with him. When you're thinking, I mean, you know what I should do? I should call that person. I should hold that door. I should start that conversation. I should text that person. I should read that verse. I should offer encouragement. But the Holy Spirit is willing to lead when we are willing to listen. I want to give you two more thoughts on hope. The first thought, obviously, is this. Spend, don't try harder. Spend more time listening for the Holy Spirit. Verse 28 says, Simeon came into the temple. He was this divine appointment appointed for him by the Holy Spirit. As he took up Jesus in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What we see here is that Simeon's hope was a long-awaited hope. Hope takes time. Simeon trusted that God would come through on his promises, and God did come through, but God came through in God's time. If I were to offer you encouragement today, I'd say, I don't know how long you'll have to hold on to hope, but I know it's longer than you hope, because hope takes time. Hope is a hope in things not seen. It is longing to see the promises of God fulfilled in the absolute confidence that he will come through. God makes future promises in the past tense. If God said he will do it, he will come through. Hope takes time. Finally, it closes this way in verse 33. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed. And Mary's on the edge of her seat. She's excited. I've heard the prophecies about this, this son. I'm, I'm so excited. And he says, this, this, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising but it leads with the bad news, the fall of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, you're going to face opposition. Parenthetically, it says that a sword will pierce your own soul too. Like, Mary, you're going to experience a pain because of this promise of God that you cannot comprehend so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here's the final thing about hope. We have to have an honest hope. Hope isn't just blind hope. 
Hope isn't just hoping that everything will work out according to what we think is best, but hope, real hope, is trusting that God is in control when things seem most challenging, when the diagnosis is most discouraging, when the relationship is most strained, when the provision seems so far away, that God is good and he wants good for his people and he will follow through on every one of his promises. Simeon told Mary that he's he's gonna be good. This is gonna be good, but it's gonna hurt and it's gonna be hard, but hold on to hope. Hope is contagious. I have to think that on our most difficult day, as Mary watched her firstborn son be nailed to the cross for the forgiveness of people she had not yet met, the words of Simeon played in the back of her mind that she would hold on to hope. So how do we hope? How do we hope? Do we just blind hope? No. We have a hope in the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. I want to close with this verse. It says this. It says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Paul's exciting way to say that every single one of the promises of God is fulfilled in Jesus. If, if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and Jesus did what Jesus said he would do, then Jesus will come through. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God for his glory. That's Paul's way of saying that is why we agree with everything that God says, the good things and the hard things for the glory of God. And then he says this, he says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If you're here today and you're struggling to hold on to hope, I'm not going to encourage you to try harder, but hold on to the Holy Spirit. This week, I was reminded that it is hard to trust guarantees in this world. It's hard to even trust lifetime guarantees because without throwing them under the bus, there was a major nationwide corporation that I won't tell you who they are, but they were selling smiles directly to your home. They were this multi-million dollar business and they just closed up shop one day. They've been taking money from people for a long time. They've been promising them that they would have straight smiles and they'd probably have happiness and joy and long lasting marriages as a result of it. And one day they decided that they didn't have enough money to keep going. So they just closed up shop. And I was curious about it. I always like to figure out why businesses close so we can make sure that our organization never closes. And so I, I got on their website, I looked it up, and their beautiful website was replaced with just a simple fact page. And it said, like, uh, if I've paid for my retainers, are they going to continue coming in the mail? And it says, no, at this time, operations have ceased to no longer continue. If I, uh, you know, need, do I need to continue, continue my consultations every 60 days? No, at this time, the operations have ceased. And, and then it said this. It says, does the lifetime guarantee still remain. No, at this time, the lifetime guarantee is null and void. It's like, then it was never a lifetime guarantee, right? Like, it's easy to make promises in our world, and whether or not they come true, we will never know. But when Jesus lived and died and rose again, and when he called his church, he gave us his Holy Spirit. And he said, as long as you have that Holy Spirit in you, you I can promise that I am holding on to you. That the promises of God are yes and amen in him.
that if God is who God says he is, if Jesus did what Jesus said he would do and the Holy Spirit has been given to us, lest we never fall into the trap of giving up hope. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together as your people to sit under the teaching and authority of your word. Father, we're thankful that you've preserved for us on the pages of the Bible this ancient story pointing us to the faithfulness of Simeon who held on to the Holy Spirit, hearing your promises. Father, I pray that as the Christmas season approaches, there'll be a time of self-evaluation, self-reflection. Father, if we feel like we have given up hope on anything you said you would come through on, that, Father, your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to our hearts today. As we sing these final two songs, as we make much of you, Father, we ask that you make yourself, your goodness and your grace, your steadfast love and steadfast commitment to your people known to us. It is in the holy and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.